Beloved, let us pray. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with deep joy what you have to say to us this day. This we pray in the name of our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you for indulging me in that little icebreaker question earlier, especially to our beloved introverts out there. Your patience is appreciated. Now, I promise that there is a reason that Mark had you engage in that exercise. A few weeks ago, the lead film critic at Entertainment Weekly, Chris Nashawati, released his list of the top 20 Christmas movies of all time. Now, I'm going to run through a few of his selections, and if I say your favorite movie, I need you to do something really crazy. There's like an appendage next to you. I need you just to lift your arm and raise your hand. I know Presbyterians, this is a little hard. If I say your movie, okay? So coming in, at, and I'll even play, coming in at number 11, the 1990 film starring Macaulay Culkin, Home Alone. Okay. All right. Me too. That's mine. This is the only time I'm going to raise my hand. All right. Number eight, the 1992 film, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay. We've got some strong Muppet energy over here and back there. All right. Number six, Love Actually. All right. Okay. A few. All right. Now we're getting down to the top five. Number five, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Okay, Sandy. We got Sandy. We got to take her up there. Number four, Elf. <laughs> it is appropriate that you wooed um, when I said that movie. Number three, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Okay. There is like not a clear, I see you, Cece. There's not a clear winner out there. All right. Number two, A Christmas Story. Okay, that, that might have the most takers at this point. All right, now don't worry, we're gonna get to the number one film later. I, prom I promise you all like, friends, as prolific as the genre of Christmas movies is, you gotta admit, it's almost as if someone wrote a formula for an ideal Christmas story and everyone just started following it like a recipe. All you need is a pinch of a problem a spoonful of colorful characters, a cup of a happy ending, and voila, you have yourself a Christmas story. A predictable, unsurprising, and cute Christmas story. Now, this is ironic, of course, because nothing about the original Christmas story is actually very cute. Yes, over the years, we have retrofitted this narrative into our handy-dandy formula that I just mentioned. And in doing so, we have overlooked and even forgotten parts of the story that are unpredictable, rather surprising, and not very cute. Like, what an absolute scandal it was for Mary to be an unwed teenager with an unplanned pregnancy. Or that Herod ordered all children in and around Bethlehem under the age of two to be killed. Which meant that Joseph and Mary and Jesus spent the earliest years of his life on the run. 
We have heard this story so many times in so many ways that we have forgotten just how shocking it really is. But as always, scripture keeps us from wandering too far, reminding us that this story is not ours to write, but ours to receive, to honor, to welcome. One way we are doing that is through our Advent sermon series, O Antiphons, an ancient, an ancient tradition of reciting the names scripture ascribes to Jesus as we wait expectantly for his birth. The story of Christmas shaped not by the formulas of modern culture, but by the word of God. Now the choir already introduced our antiphon for this second Sunday in Advent at the start of the service. Thank you, choir. O Root of Jesse. Accompanying this antiphon is probably the most scandalous of readings in our Advent lectionary. So for those of you who are expecting a sleepy little story about a sweet little baby, this ain't it. It's better. Here now the first verses of the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Sal Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to, to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salithiel, and Salithiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. <laughs> You know how many times I had to Google, how do you pronounce? And I probably got a lot of them wrong. So, but let me finish the passage. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And a reading from the prophet Isaiah. A shoot shall come out from the stalk of Jesse 
and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, by way of recap, we have already covered two antiphons or names for Jesus. O King of Nations and O Wisdom. We have gone from the theological to the philosophical, and today we are going genealogical with a third antiphon, O Root of Jesse. Now, genealogies are usually those parts of scripture that most people don't read and don't feel bad about not reading. After all, what kind of wisdom can you glean from a list of names? But as I said two weeks ago, names matter. The titles we bear as individuals are more than just a combination of letters. They tell stories, expose biases, and even convey identity. Now, if one name can do all of that, imagine what a genealogy can do. By tracking the names of one generation to the next, genealogies shine a light on everything from our biological DNA to our historical DNA. And Jesus' genealogy in Matthew is no exception. From the very first verse, we learn what this particular family tree aims to prove. First, that Jesus is a direct descendant of Abraham and proof that God's covenant with the Israelites is still intact. And second, that Jesus is a direct descendant in the royal line of David, a.k.a. the root of Jesse, and proof that he is the Messiah prophesied about in Isaiah 11. Okay, now if verse 1 was all that we had in terms of Jesus' ancestry, it would be enough. This genealogy would fit perfectly into the formula of what makes a great Christmas story. But Matthew is not interested in playing by the rules. While this passage might look a lot like every other patrilineal genealogy in the Bible, it is anything but. If you look closely, woven into this long list of expected names and details are some unexpected names and some unexpected details. For starters, the names of three women and a reference to one, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Now, if you know your Bible stories, you know that these four individuals are out of place in this lineup for more reasons than just being women. Each one a part of a non-Israelite family, each one associated with their own sex scandal, each one with skeletons in their closets. Not only is their presence in this genealogy unsavory, to say the least, they are also undeniable proof that God's plan has been tampered with and the purity of Jesus' lineage has been tainted. Now, before we move on and make the lazy conclusion that it's just the women who complicates things, Matthew makes sure to throw some shade at the men, too, by adding in details that aren't necessary for a genealogy, but make a point nonetheless. Details like Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, the very ones who sold their youngest brother into slavery. Or David, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Yeah, that just happened. 
And finally, the last male heir before Jesus in the bloodline of Abraham and David is the grandson of Matan, the son of Jacob, whose name is Joseph, but whose claim to fame is that he is the husband of Mary. How do you like them apples? Nothing about this genealogy is as it should be. If its goal was to elevate Jesus, then Matthew failed miserably. Because instead of proving a pure lineage or a clean line of succession, instead of including just the heroes and the saints, instead of just sticking to the formula, what Matthew gives us is a big, long list of impure, imperfect, unimpressive humans. The kind of people whose stories we would rather not tell this time of year. Why? Well, because these are not the kind of people we aspire to be like. Not the kind of people we would cast in a Hallmark movie. During Advent and Christmas, we want to feel awe and wonder. But all this genealogy does is make us feel embarrassment. And worst of all, shame. And there it is. The other S word. Right next to sin, shame is one of those things that every single person experiences and yet no one wants to talk about. But that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to talk about shame. Dr. Brene Brown, the widely recognized expert on this very topic, defines shame as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love belonging, and connection. As usual, Brown names it. That right there is what shame is. But what's more interesting is what shame does. You see, shame has the power to keep us quiet. Shame has the power to keep who we are hidden. And shame loves it when we stick to the formula. Brown writes, shame hates it when we reach out and tell our story. It hates having words wrapped around it. It can't survive being shared. Shame thrives on secrecy, silence, and judgment. How? By telling us the lie that if we shared our real story or identity or even our genealogy, then we would be deemed unworthy, unlovable, unacceptable as we are. Now, who would want to experience that? No one. And so we do everything in our power to avoid shame. First, we go on the defensive. We hide, we obfuscate, we pretend our lives are as pretty and pure as our favorite Christmas movie. We bury the parts of us that we think no one wants to know about, no one would understand, no one would accept. Or we go on the offensive. We carefully construct lives that are immune to shame. We live in such a way that no one would dare to criticize us. We worship at the altar of perfectionism, all in an effort to avoid just one misstep, just one mistake. You see, in the same way we have been implicitly told what makes a good story, we have also been implicitly told what makes a bad one. The kind of story that gets you canceled by culture or rejected by your community or made to feel like you are less than and you don't belong. The kind of story that results in shame. 
Stories of failed careers and broken relationships. Stories of loneliness and loss. Stories of abuse and addiction. Stories of depression and anxiety. Stories of dysfunctional families and broken systems. Stories of not fitting in, measuring up, or conforming to the standards and expectations that surround us. Stories we were told to hide in order to belong. Well, guess what? We were told wrong. As we see in our passage for today from the gospel according to Matthew, as we see in the very family tree of our Savior, Jesus Christ, God has zero desire to fit the most sacred story ever told into some trite and conventional formula. Zero desire to bury the story no matter how unexpected or embarrassing or shameful it might seem. Now, as we see in our passage for today from the gospel according to Matthew, God is intent on putting the entire story in writing. From Abraham to Tamar, Rahab to Jesse, David to Mary. From patriarch to prostitute, devoted to despicable fathers and mothers, kings and foreigners, nobodies and somebodies, the shameful and the shameless. God includes all of it to show us, to remind us, to prove to us beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are not loved in spite of our humanity. We are loved because of it. We are found worthy in God's eyes, not by concealing our flaws, but by accepting them. And we were not made to hide any part of who we are, but to live in the glory of the one who created us. After all, Jesus came to this earth not to erase our human story, but to be a part of it, to love it, to save it, to redeem it. And that right there is our happy ending. That right there is the good news of the gospel. And so I have not forgotten that we still have one more Christmas movie on the list. It's a movie that is almost universally recognized as the number one best Christmas movie of all time. Any guesses? It's a Wonderful Life. Thank you, Aaron. Who's, who was that? Okay. We got a few hands. Okay, okay. It's a Wonderful Life. All right. Now, uh, Released in December of 1946, this beloved classic was a box office flop. At the time, critics agreed that the storyline was trite. The characters felt dull. Even the villain didn't go to jail. In other words, it didn't fit the formula. As many of you know, It's a Wonderful Life tells the story of a man by the name of George Bailey. A story that starts not at the beginning of his life, but at the point where George wants to end it. Overcome with shame over what he deems as numerous failures from financial to familial to personal, George gets to the point where he actually believes that the world would be better off if he were dead. Enter his guardian angel, Clarence Oddbody, who doesn't give George a new life, or show him how he can achieve all the dreams that he ever wanted to. Instead, he shows George what the world would have been like if he had never lived. A world with less love, less hope, less grace, less humanity. 
Through this holy experience, George realizes that he may not have the life he expected or even the life that he wanted, but the one that he has is just as wonderful. His story is just as wonderful. Beloved, the same is true for us. Each and every one of us has a place in God's story and a place in Jesus' family just as we are. That is the holy formula that God offers us this and every day. So instead of hiding our story, we can proudly share them. Instead of judgment, there's forgiveness. And instead of shame, there is grace. Abundant and everlasting grace. And so now let us prepare our hearts to receive a true embodiment of that grace as we sup at the Lord's table.